0: Why don't you guys open with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 12 through 19 this morning. And how many of you guys have at least been with us the last couple weeks? We've been running through this theme of what? It's been an effective couple weeks. Suffering, right? Suffering. and. This morning, Peter kind of wraps up this, this theme that we've seen being woven throughout the book of First Peter, and, uh, and so for some of you, are like, I don't want him to talk about suffering again. I'm sorry. The Bible talks about it. We're going to deal with it this morning. And so what's interesting to me when, when I go to read Scripture is uh, how many of you in here believe that Scripture is paramount, that it's the authoritative Word of God, Right? And it's interesting that uh, that so many Bible-believing Christians uh, would not see suffering as a key theme throughout all of Scripture, uh, and they would try to resist it, when in fact it's like suffering is just all throughout Scripture, and not suffering like a wah-wah for wah-wah's sake, but like suffering for the cause of Christ, to relate to Jesus in our suffering. And so if you look at 1 Peter 4, uh, if you... Turn to verse 12. Uh, You'll see that Peter begins this section in this really amazing, this beautiful, like heartfelt manner. What's the first thing that he says in 1 Peter 4.12? What's that first word? Beloved. He says, Beloved. Isn't that an awesome way of addressing somebody? Anybody in this room address others as beloved? (laughs) Some of it. Courtney. That's awesome. I don't do that enough, you know, but what an awesome way to address people as beloved. I think Peter is actually doing this for a very specific reason, because Peter knows what's actually to come next, uh, that, it's, that what he has to say is actually going to be quite hard for them to hear, quite hard for them to deal with. And, and so he's going to bring into this paragraph the theme that he's been weaving all throughout the letter of suffering, and he's going to start this section by saying, beloved, and the, the book of 1 Peter, uh, I want to break it down really quickly for those of you that haven't been with us for the whole duration of the study. I want to break it down into three sections for you guys this morning. So as you're thinking of 1 Peter, the, the book as a whole, think of it in these three sections. Think of it in ch- as chapter 1, verse 3, through, through chapter 2, verse 12, and the theme being our living hope and a holy life. So, in this first section, then, Peter reminds believers of this living hope they have because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so he calls believers to this holy life because they've been redeemed as they await the second coming of Jesus. So, that's the first section. And then the second section is chapter uh, 2, verses 12 through uh, 12 and 13 through chapter 3, verse 7. And in this section, he dealt with. Uh, our submission in honoring God, God's honor. In in verse 12, if you guys remember back that that far, uh, it was sort of like this hinge verse that linked these two sections together. In verse 12 uh, of chapter 2, Peter says to the believers that even though they might be insulted by their neighbors around them, they actually aren't to return insult for insult, but they're to live such good lives that people would see the goodness in their life and they would do What? Glorify their Father in heaven because of the goodness they see, because of the, the flavor that the Christians bring to this earth. And then the last section uh, that, that we're going to be in this morning is chapter 3, verses 8 uh, through chapter 4, verse 19. And in this section, it's just sort of littered with this idea of like our suffering and Christ's suffering and what that looks like to relate to Jesus in the midst of suffering. And in this section, Peter calls believers. Um, as strangers in exile to suffer well, that there 's an opportunity for us to suffer well, and he says that, that we should always set aside Christ as Lord of our hearts, and we should be willing to give a defense for the hope that lies within us and so Peter holds up Jesus as the ultimate example of the one, as a, of one who suffered while actually being treated unjustly and so this theme of suffering that's been woven throughout this letter reaches this sort of climax in this passage that we're going to be reading today. And so Peter basically says that there are four ways that we respond to suffering that he's going to talk about this morning. And so we're going to deal with these four ways. One, he says that we expect it. Two, that we rejoice in it. Three, that we evaluate it. And then the last one, that we, four, that we need to entrust ourselves to God in it. And so I want to look at 1 Peter, 4, 12, uh, 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19 this morning. I want you guys to see these four ways that we respond to suffering. Um, let's read through these passages, and then let's pray and get to it, all right, First Peter 4, chapter, uh, tw- or chapter 4, verse 12. You can say amen when you're there. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Verse 19 Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God, shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what's right. you guys pray with me? Jesus, we we present this time to you this morning. Uh, I think this is holy ground where we get to open up your word and learn from it. I pray that you'd season this time, Lord, with your grace. I pray that, God, you would edify your church and build her up uh, through your word, Lord, I pray that your spirit would be actively involved this morning. Would you move? Would you flush through this place and move in the lives, the hearts, and the minds of the people in this room? I pray, God, that in all things we talk about this morning, that you would be made paramount, Lord, that we would place you front and center on this stage. Jesus, this is about you. This is for you. And I pray, God, that we would see In our own lives, how it is that we have this tremendous opportunity to relate to your sufferings in our own lives, Lord, to see what it is you took on for us, God, but we get this awesome opportunity to be refined and purified and made more and more into your image and likeness. And so I pray this morning, God, that if there's any in this room that just sort of want to resist this idea of suffering and they've felt it, they've been through it enough in their life, and this morning they're just kind of tuning it out, I'm praying that this morning you'd open up their hearts to hear from you, Jesus. This has to be a work from you. And your, your promise is that your word will go forth and it will accomplish the work that you intended for it to do, that it will not return void. And so I pray that it would do that and accomplish that this morning in your name, Jesus. Amen. Awesome. Verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. Um, as I was studying uh, this passage, um, you, you read all these different commentators as you're preparing, and, and I, I, I saw that these commentators that I was reading were all a bit divided on what Peter actually means here when he talks about this fiery ordeal that he refers to. So again, in this first verse here in verse 12, I want to talk about this idea that we're to expect suffering. Um, four ways that we respond to suffering. And the first one is that we expect it. And so, what does Peter mean when he talks about this fiery ordeal? Some of the commentators that I was reading from believed that uh, it's this general reference to a difficulty that a Christian might experience. That um, that that it's a difficulty that was quite intense. That this is why it's referred to as fiery. It was something painful. Other commentators that you read from would see the fiery trial as something very specific that Peter's uh, readers are actually going to face or were facing, that there was something specific that Peter was actually intending to prepare them for. So to give you a little bit of historical context to what's going on exactly when Peter is is writing this to uh, the, the readers, for nine days in the summer of AD 64, there was this huge fire that raged in Rome and the flames from this fire were said to have consumed all of the wooden buildings. Like it destroyed the city. Anything that could be burned up was burned up. And it was actually the, the desire of the Roman emperor at the time, Nero, to rebuild Rome. He, he wanted to see it become a different city. He had a different kind of agenda and vision for the city. And so for him to see the place burned down was actually beneficial because he could rebuild it as he saw fit. And so, as this fire blazed it 's said that Nero sat up in his tower and he literally watched the, the the city be destroyed and The Roman troops were actually preventing people from extinguishing these fires, and the Roman troops were actually contributing to starting new fires and so um, many said that, that Nero actually started all of these fires himself because he had an agenda. He wanted the city burned down so that he could rebuild his own vision. And this catastrophe that took place in Rome at the time like, totally demoralized the Romans because they lost all of their earthly goods and it's interesting that Rome was sort of the pride of the, 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 the emperor, the pride of the empire, and now Rome itself was in ruins. It was destroyed through this fire. So talk about having pride in their city and thinking they were the best, and then your whole city is destroyed by these fires. So what was it that Nero did? We talked about this a few weeks ago. Uh, with, with all of his citizens in Rome up in arms about what had happened, Nero actually made the Christian community the scapegoat for the fire. He blamed it all on the the, the Christians. So talk about smart, right? The the Christians were already hated in the empire. Nobody liked them. They were being persecuted for what they believed, and and it was even said that the unbelievers at the time, the people that were not Christians, said this about Christians, that Christians consumed human flesh and blood during the Lord's Supper. They were disgusting. They would actually eat human flesh and drink human blood when they would take communion, Uh, or that when Christians greeted one another with a holy kiss, it was said that um, they were actually kissing each other with unbridled passion, that there was more to it than that. And these are the rumors that were going around about the Christians, the believers. the, 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 uh, The unbelievers also believed that Christians were atheists because they didn't worship the gods of Rome. There was only one way to them. And so the Christians were already hated. They're already reviled. Like, What a smart tactic for Nero to say, man, if I just use the Christians as a scapegoat, like they're the ones that started this fire. They're the ones that destroyed it. But then I get to build the city that I've always wanted to build. So Nero took advantage of these falsities that were being spread uh, about the believers, and he pinned them as the ones that started the fire. So Then what does Nero go on to do? He starts persecuting the Christians, like brutally persecuting them, executing them. And he uses this lie that they had started the fire and basically gives himself permission to rebuild Rome. Like that's, that's what he desired to do. For, so, the, so for the next 200 years, understand that the Roman Empire, in the Roman Empire, to be a Christian for 200 years after this meant that you would suffer and that you would be persecuted. They went through it. It meant that you would go through a fiery ordeal or a trial in your life. It would happen for 200 years. So Peter actually wanted to prepare his readers and the coming generations of believers for suffering, for these fiery trials that would come upon them. And so he says to them, don't be surprised when this happens. Like this was a command that Peter's giving. Why would he say this? Why would he say, don't be surprised? Because I think that Peter knew that when we face suffering, when we face persecution in our life, our natural response is. In the human heart is to be what? Shocked. (gasps) What? I have to go through this? Like we begin to think that that something strange is happening to us. Like why is this happening to me? Why am I going through this? There's an author named Paul Tripp that said this. He said, if I could design my normal week, a week that, that I would like to repeat again and again, it would have no suffering. In fact, it would have no difficulty of any kind. Nothing would get in my way. My ideas would rule the day. Everyone would applaud my presence. I would have a body that's completely healthy, a stomach that's always full, and a mind that is always entertained. And as Christians, this is what we expect, oftentimes, life to be like. We tend to approach life with the expectation that it should be hassle-free and suffering-free. How many of you guys see businesses pitch this all the time? Hassle-free buying experience. There's something in our culture about eliminating any, anything that could be uh, where we could experience heartache or we could experience suffering. We want to make things as palpable and easy as possible, and so we tend to approach life with the expectation that it should be hassle-free. We should not have to deal with this stuff. And, and so living in the 21st century, we, uh, we, we find it difficult more than any other people of any other time. Because of technology and consumption and the promise of this hassle-free and this difficult free life, we find it more difficult now than ever before to actually comprehend and deal with suffering. If you, if you don't have that kind of life, our society actually says that something's wrong with you. If you don't have the hassle free, something must be wrong with you. And so Peter knows that to suffer well, you actually need to have the right expectation and not be surprised and expect suffering. And there's really three reasons why Christians should expect suffering. One, that Christians are not sucked into the delusion that this world is a perfect place. We of all people should not believe that. Christians know that we actually live in a, a broken and fallen world and therefore everyone will suffer. No one's immune from suffering. Everyone is going to experience it. The second thing is that Christians understand that they're strangers and exiles in this land, that this is not your home, that the world will hate you. Remember that Jesus said in John 15, 20, he said, remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. We're strangers in this world, and Peter reiterates this idea. If the world hated Christ, we shouldn't think it strange that we're going to be disliked as well. The third thing, in verse 12, Peter says, do not be surprised by the fiery ordeal which comes upon you for your testing. So Peter uses both these words fiery and test back in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. He said this, he said, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. He said, So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. is Christians know that God has a bigger agenda for our lives than just our temporal happiness. We of all people should know this. Like Jesus loves us that much, that He doesn't want us to be temporarily happy. He wants us to be satisfied only with His eternal glory. And that's what Peter's trying to reiterate. He doesn't want your satisfaction being found in anything else. He wants it to be found in Him. But one of the tools that God uses to do this is suffering, it's even persecution. Like He's this really good God, He doesn't cause suffering, He doesn't cause persecution. But he allows believers to suffer in order to build steel into our convictions and to refine our faith, to make us stronger, to purify us, to, to prepare us for what's ahead. So don't be surprised, church. Expect suffering. Anybody in here in school right now? Junior high, high school, college, a handful of you. Now, anybody ever been to school in this room? most of you. I'm not trying to single anybody else out that hasn't. It's all good. But think about when you got exams, when you were in school. It's not like the teacher just dropped an exam on your test and said, surprise, you know, test today. Like, that just doesn't happen very often. It's not like you're surprised when you get tested. Like, what? Like, what in the world is this? Like, I didn't expect to get tested today. Like, that doesn't make sense. Why would you do this? When you're in school, you actually expect some sort of exam. You expect some sort of test. So we shouldn't be surprised, should we, when some sort of test comes in your life, when God teaches us something in his word that he will actually set up situations, that he will actually set up circumstances in our lives to test our faith and refine our faith. Like we should expect suffering. We should expect tests to come. So my first point was that we should expect suffering, and the second thing we need to do when we suffer is that we need to rejoice in ourselves. So we expect it, and then Peter goes on to talk about us rejoicing in it. Look at verse 13. He says, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. What the heck does Peter mean when he says we should rejoice when we share in the sufferings of Christ? What does he mean to share in the sufferings of Jesus? What does that look like? To, to share in, in the suffering of Christ does not mean that our suffering adds anything to the redemptive work of Jesus. That's not it. Like Peter said in, in, in chapter 3, verse 18, he said that Christ suffered once for sins. Once, right? The righteous for the unrighteous to do what? To bring us to God. So our, our suffering doesn't add anything to our salvation. It's not, you're not earning anything through it. Jesus paid that price once and for all. Our salvation was completely paid for by the sufferings that Jesus accomplished for us once and for all. But what Peter does mean is that the suffering that we experience when we stand up and we announce, we profess our allegiance to Jesus and we face suffering, that, that we actually count it a privilege to face whatever we have to as a result of telling the world what we belong to, who we belong to. That we're willing to stand up and profess Christ regardless of what may come against us. Peter goes on to say in verse 14: if you're reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed. You're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. the, The way that this is written kind of suggests that this will be the case. Peter says: if you're reviled for the name of Jesus, you're blessed. Count it a blessing. Well, why, why is that? Because he says the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. I, I think when you stand up to profess the name of Jesus and you suffer uh, insults because of your allegiance, I think his Holy Spirit rests upon us in the midst of that. You, you sense God's presence in a very unique way. Have you ever read stories about martyrs and what they experienced in, even in their death? That there was sort of the supernatural thing that was happening. Like God was actually preparing them for what it was that was taking place, but they were actually rejoicing in it. Like that is not a a fleshly response to suffering. That is the spirit of the living God in you preparing you for whatever it is you may suffer because you stand up and profess the name of Jesus. You announce your allegiance to him. There was a man by the name of Richard Wurmbrand, died in 2001, and not many people even knew who he was. Like, his death didn't even attract much attention. But back in the late 60s and 70s, this man, Richard Wormbrand was this well-known Christian Romanian pastor that spoke out against communism. And he suffered for the gospel, and he, in his journals, he described the joy that he had in the midst of persecution. I want you to hear this. Like, this man had been placed in solitary confinement, beaten. He was covered in scars, yet he describes times when he was completely overcome with joy. He writes that he would stand up in his weakened state, that he would dance around the cell as if angels were dancing with him, that he had an intimacy with God and experienced the presence of God in suffering. I mean, explain that. There was something sweet about what he was experiencing, that that the, the Holy Spirit was on him, moving through him, giving him the ability in the midst of this fiery ordeal that he's in the midst of, granting him joy, the ability to rejoice, to worship, to dance, even in his weakened state, to worship the living God in the midst of his suffering. How amazing is that? We need to rejoice in our suffering. It actually helps us yearn for our eternal glory that we're going to experience with Jesus. We should expect suffering. We should rejoice in suffering. And third, we need to evaluate our suffering. So Peter knows how easy it is for us in our sinfulness um, to misunderstand the sources of our suffering. And, And so when we suffer, we need to prayerfully go to God and evaluate why it is we're suffering. And so Peter says that there's three sources to suffering. Um, if you read uh, verses 15, 16, and 17. Uh, the first one is this, that our suffering can re- be a result of our own sin, he says. In, in verse 15, he says, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. Peter actually knew how easy it was for people to rationalize their suffering, Right? to pin it on something that wasn't truth, to justify it as Christian suffering when it's actually a result of their own sin, their own behavior. Have you ever heard somebody come to you and say that uh, their boss was giving them a difficult time at work because uh, their boss hates Christians? Have you guys ever heard that before? I've heard people talk like that. Oh, the guy hates me. He hates Christians, so he just gives me a hard time at work. And then after you just talk to them for a little while, you realize, you realize that they actually weren't suffering for Christ. They're just lazy. <laughs> like, they just actually weren't doing their job. Like, oh, he hates Christians. No, he actually just doesn't like the fact that you call yourself a Christian and you don't work hard. But we like to rationalize our suffering. Like, even our simple behavior, oh, it's, oh, it's the enemy, you know, it's just... I'm facing persecution, and this is suffering. But sometimes, that's not a result of your, you pronouncing your allegiance to Jesus, you preaching the gospel. Sometimes it's just because you're making stupid decisions in your life, and you're suffering the consequences for the decisions that you're making. So suffering can be a result of your own sin. And honestly, if that's the case, I want to challenge you this morning to take responsibility for your sin, to confess it to Jesus and to come back to God. It's that easy. Take it, confess it, and come back to Jesus. The second thing is that our suffering can come as a result of our identification with Jesus. So our suffering can be a result of our own sin, but verse 16, our suffering can come as a result of our identification with Jesus. He says this, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in his name, in this name. Uh, it's interesting, I don't know if you guys knew this, but the term Christian really isn't even used very often in the Bible. You don't see it very often. So the fact that it's used here, it's like one of a few places that it's actually used. And the early Christians didn't even refer to themselves, didn't even identify themselves as Christians. They actually called themselves what? Anybody know? Followers of the way, right? Because Jesus said he was the way, the truth, and the life. And so believers were known as followers of the way. They weren't known as Christians. Uh, and, and so this term Christian was actually a, more of a derogatory term because of the way that Jesus was crucified. Like people actually looked down on those that would call themselves Christians because they, they should be ashamed to affiliate themselves with Jesus at all because of the way he was crucified, because of his death. I mean, he, he was just kind of, he was made to look ridiculous in the world's eyes. And um, so the people that professed to follow him were considered ridiculous as well. And Peter was saying in this passage, don't be ashamed. He was saying, embrace the name of Jesus. Don't be ashamed of the name of Jesus. Embrace the name of Jesus. And I think that we actually struggle with this today we feel ashamed to profess our allegiance to Jesus. It's it's a weird day and age to be a follower of Christ, isn't it? It's odd. Like when when I get on an airplane, there's part of me that goes through a little anxiety because I realize that if I'm going to sit next to me, what question are they going to ask me? What do you do for a living? If you want the best response to cut all communication with people anywhere in life, just call yourself a pastor. Like, people will just not talk to you. You know, it's like the immediate showstopper. What do you do for a living? I'm a pastor. Oh, have a good flight. Like, okay. But it's this weird day and age we live in. And so we actually, because we know what the world thinks of Christians, we actually tend to kind of hide and and skirt being able to give a a defense for what it is we actually believe and who it is that we stand for. But Peter's encouragement is to not be ashamed of Christ. Don't be ashamed of him. If anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God, like even more, to worship him, to give him glory. We need to embrace this name Christian. And then there's this third source of suffering that Peter talks about in verse 17. That we can suffer because God is actually disciplining us and purifying us. And this is a really hard passage. At first glance, you read this passage in 17 and it sounds kind of like, wow, what judgment can come upon the household of God? Like, explain this one to me. It says, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And so Peter's sort of using this argument from lesser to greater. He's saying that if judgment begins with the household of God, with believers, then what will it be like for those who don't believe? At at first glance, I think this passage is shocking for Western Christians. Like talking about a judgment that can come upon believers? Like what is all this about? But we have to understand that he's not referring to an eternal judgment. Like 1 Thessalonians 5.9, Paul says this, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's no eternal judgment that's awaiting the believers. But according to scripture, there's actually a purifying judgment. There's a discipline that can come upon believers. Like God is coming to purify his church. He's coming to discipline his church. And this isn't a bad thing. Like some some of the, the suffering that we experience in life can be a form of God disciplining us. And there are times where God will allow difficulties to purify you and to even prune you in john 15 jesus says what he says i am the vine and my father's the vine dresser listen to this he says he cuts off every branch that does not bear fruit but get this then he goes on to say that every branch that does bear fruit he prunes to make it more fruitful If you're a follower of Jesus, he's not interested in cutting you off. He's interested in helping you grow more, produce more fruit in your life. Like as a father, I discipline my kids not because I hate them because I want them out of the house. I discipline them because I want them to see, to become these little missionaries, these little men of God. I want to see them love their wives well. I want to see them love their friends well. I want to see them love the world well and be proponents of the gospel of Jesus. Like, that is what I care about. And so when we discipline, we actually discipline our children to push them in a certain direction in their life so that they can make good choices. When God disciplines us, this judgment that's talking, He's talking about coming upon the household of God, this purifying work, this discipline that comes even through suffering, understand that it's not to cut your legs out from underneath you. It's actually to make you stronger. It's actually to give you a better perspective of the world around you. It's actually to give you the eyes and the mind and the heart of Jesus, that your life would produce more fruit as you're pruned but we sit back and we go like oh man this just hurts and why would God allow all this to happen to me and we don't often look at it as where is the opportunity in this what is God doing in me what things is he what dross is he trying to get rid of what things is he wanting to prune back so that I can become more fruitful in my life that my life would look more like Jesus because I'll tell you what Our lives constantly are in this state of trying to do for ourselves, accomplish what we want. And I don't know about you, but at 40 years old, I'm feeling like the older I get, the more selfishness I see in myself and the more of me I see fighting for certain things to try to get my way. And Jesus has to iron that stuff out of us because your life can never be about you. It can't. Your life can never be about safety and comfort. Your life can never be about meeting your agenda and making your dreams happen. Your life is about Christ, what he wants to accomplish through you, what he wants to do in you, through you, to make you the man and the woman that he's called you to be, that your life would bear fruit, that you would be the flavor on this earth of Jesus to the rest of this world, that they would see Christ in you, that the way you suffer and the way you experience hardship in your life is different than the way the rest of the world suffers and experiences hardship in their life, that as you suffer and you experience hardship, you're becoming more like Jesus. You're looking more like him and the world is going, what in the world is going on in you? I'm allowing the Lord to prune me, to cut me back, to provide more opportunity for growth so I can look more like Him because I have a tendency to want to look more and more like Chris. And so Peter says judgment starts with the household of God. And the fourth way that we respond to suffering is in these last two verses. that we need to entrust ourselves to God. He says this in verses 18 and 19. And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Can I just make a caveat real quick? I'm gonna ask the worship team to come up here, but brief caveat. This is why cherry-picking Scripture is so dangerous in your life. Because you will always be attracted to the verses that make you feel good, and you will never read the things that actually are pruning you, refining you, challenging you, causing you to go to Jesus in prayer and say, what in the world does this mean? To dig in, to really understand the heart of God. This is why it's so dangerous to just be like, I love John 3.16. Sweet. (laughs) So do I. But I also see a lot of opportunity in the rest of scripture. Like, I, I see a lot of learning opportunity in the life of Paul who suffered immensely in his life. And, and when I look at the life of Paul, I think to myself sometimes, um, why didn't he just run away? <laughs> like, just hide himself somewhere? And at the end of the day, the reason Paul never did that is because Paul knew what? that There was a time when God literally knocked him on his tail and got a hold of his life and gave him a call, like reset his identity, gave him a new purpose in Jesus. He saw Christ face to face, and he gave him a new direction. And so for Paul, in the midst of times in his life where he was beaten, and he was spit on, and he was shipwrecked, and persecuted, and gone through all kinds of turmoil for the sake of Jesus, I often think about the fact that the only thing that he backed up on in those times was the fact that he knew what God had done in him and what God had called him to and for Paul there were times in his life where that had to be the thing that like kept him moving forward cuz life will get hard it'll get tough and in the midst of those rough times it's very easy to just be like later Jesus And I've probably seen 80%, like, okay, I went to a Bible college uh, from 99 to 2001. I would say that uh, I graduated with a bunch of guys and girls that were becoming pastors. I'd say not only are like 80% of them not serving in ministry at all, but a large majority of them have even turned their backs on Jesus. And I think, what the heck happened? They had an identity crisis. Like even though, as Paul refers to, in um, 1 Corinthians chapter three, like the foundation being Christ, but then he sort of gives these two different people that build upon that. Some build upon that foundation with wood, uh, hay, and stubble. Yeah, wood, hay, and stubble. And then some build upon that foundation with things that will last eternally. And I think to myself, I've seen that over my lifetime. This isn't a matter of like, will you go to heaven or hell? It's a matter of, um, okay, so you've professed to know Jesus. Why would you build on that foundation with stuff that's going to burn? Why? Like, why? It just doesn't make sense. I I was running with Tavis yesterday, and we were we were having this conversation about this that passage in 1 Corinthians 3, and, and um, the, the, the word picture I got was sort of like, when my parents gave me a car early on in life, they, they entrusted me with this gift, this car. And they sort of said, um, you, you drive it. Well, in the first two years that I had that car, I had five speeding tickets and three accidents. My kids will never have their licenses at 14. Sorry, Judah. <laughs> I beat the heck out of that thing, this, this amazing gift that was given to me, and I was given freedom to drive it, and I beat the heck out of it. As you get older, don't you, you start to take care of your things, right, because you realize that as you get older, these things aren't as replaceable as I once thought they were, and I don't want to have to keep buying them over and over again, so I'm actually going to take good care of the possessions that I have, the, the resources that God's given me. I want to steward these things well, and then we start to teach our kids that, right, That, oh, you can't just replace these things. You need to take care of the the few gifts that you have so that they last longer. You need to be a good steward of these things. And yet, I look at Christians' lives, and I think, if you're going to look at your life in the same light, God has entrusted you with this amazing gift. If you've called upon the name of Jesus, awesome. The foundation has been laid. But even though the foundation's laid and you've got this eternal security, you still have choices on a daily basis to make in how you live this life and spend it well. You will either build on that foundation with a bunch of stuff that one day is gonna burn, or you will invest your life into the things that matter, to eternal things. You will build properly on a foundation um, that is priceless, with things that actually matter. So he says, therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what's right. The commentator Warren Wiersbe says that this word entrust that's used here is actually a banking term and it means to deposit for safekeeping. And so when you suffer, you're to turn to God and say, "Um, God, here's my life. I I hand it to you. I give it to you for safekeeping. It's yours. And with all the financial institutions that exist today, um, whether you know this or not, they're backed by the government, right? Right? And the, the, uh, the reason that these financial institutes, these banks and whatnot, are all backed by the government is because during the Depression, everything got out of control, and people went to these financial institutions and started taking all their money out, and there just wasn't enough money left in these banks for them to get everything out that they said they had in there. And so today, all these financial institutions are actually backed by the government. So in the event that a depression happens again, people won't just go to the banks and start withdrawing their money because they'll actually think that it's safe because it's backed by the government. (laughs) Okay. But your life is safe when it's handed to God. It's safe. When you entrust it to him. The the God who made all things is the one that you're giving your life to. It, it says that He is a faithful creator, that you are actually following the example of Jesus. Like I, I want you guys to underline this or write this down. Like the key verse for all of First Peter, I would say is First Peter chapter two, verses twenty-one and twenty-two. Says this: For you have been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you, as an, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Like, if you want to understand First Peter, underline these verses. Jesus actually entrusted his life to God, and in turn, that is what he is calling us to do. Present our life to him for safekeeping. For you've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his footsteps. As much as I hate the WWJD bracelets. <laughs> there, there's a lot of substance and weight in that phrase. Cuz we are to live our lives as Christ lived his. To follow in his footsteps, to make decisions in our life based on his guidance and his direction, not based on what we want. We're to build on this foundation based on what he tells us is eternal, valuable, priceless, not what we think looks good, sounds good, feels good. What is God calling you to build on this foundation with? We're gonna spend a couple more minutes worshiping and I would just challenge you guys during this time. I'll come up and pray at the end. But um, I think there's some of you in this room that have really struggled with entrusting your life to the Lord because to entrust your life in him means to lose control of it yourself. And that's exactly what he's asking of you, (laughs) to lose control of your life and allow him to keep it safe for you. And in light of that, when it comes to hardship and suffering, persecution in your life, if you know that your life is being held in the palm of his hands, why does it matter what we experience here on this earth? Because we promise there's a safety and a security in eternity with Jesus forever and ever, amen? Let's stand and worship. And um, for some of you, you probably need some time this morning to just cry out to the Lord. For some of you, your hearts are screaming to just worship. And I would just encourage you to not look at this time as a time to sing Christian karaoke and read the lyrics off the screen, but a time for you to really go to Jesus. Say, so Jesus, examine my heart. In light of in light of these four points that I gave, how are you? How are you responding to suffering in your life? Do you expect it? Do you rejoice in it? Do you evaluate it and take it to Him? Like, is it really suffering on behalf of Christ that you're experiencing, or is it suffering because of your misactions? And four, like, do you need to entrust your life to God this morning? And I just encourage you during our worship time right now to do some time with Jesus and ask Him those questions. Analyze where your heart's at this morning.